I wonder if uh, you've had the experience of having uh, your trust in people damaged. Have there been people that have let you down? Have there been people that you had high expectations of that have disappointed you? Have you had the experience of a church that has let you down? A church that you expected would behave in a particular way, but you've been disappointed? Has there been a Christian leader, perhaps, who said one thing and done another? Sometimes we find there are great scars associated with how we expect to be treated by people and yet how they treat us being very different. And I wonder whether we've had similar experiences when it comes to relating to God. Would there be times when you attempted to think or maybe you just had to struggle with the fact it seems that God has let you down, that God has not been faithful, that he hasn't been trustworthy, and you've not known where to turn. Well, we're going to be exploring a part of the Bible uh, this afternoon that helps us to see the significance of Christian people treating other people faithfully, of being trustworthy in Christian relationships, particularly if you're a leader within God's community, but also how this has a bearing on how we think about God and whether we trust God. Now, the issue for Paul is that he had said that he would visit the church in Corinth. In fact, he had plans to visit them on his way somewhere and then to visit them on his way back again. And yet he didn't turn up. So what are they tempted to think about Paul? Now, bear in mind, this is the day before, or the, the years, this is actually the millenniums before, being able to text and say you've been held up. Uh, you couldn't just send a Facebook message. Uh, there were no emails and there were no carrier pigeons that I'm aware of. So messages took some time to get through. And we can't exactly hear what's going on for the Corinthians. So reading this letter, it's a little bit like eavesdropping the other end of a phone call. You know, if there's someone in your house and they're on the phone and you think you can kind of work out who they're talking to, uh, you, you've got a rough idea as to what the message might be about and you're observing the reaction of the person on the phone. But you don't really know what the others have said. Well, we're a bit like that with the Corinthians. But I think we can get a pretty good clue. See, the issue seems to me to be one of broken trust. We don't know exactly all the details, but certainly the issue of him not turning up seems to be at the heart of it. And Paul doesn't want them to think that he's unreliable. He's concerned that they might think that he's not trustworthy. Now, it's not simply that, they don't, that he doesn't want them to have a bad impression of him. It runs deeper than this, because Paul is the one who brought the gospel to them in the first place. Paul, you can read about it in 1 Corinthians, I think it's about chapter 18, spent a year and a half amongst the Corinthians seeing the church established. And now there are people who've come into that church and it seems, again, eavesdropping the potential other side of the conversation, who are saying, Paul, he can't be trusted. Paul, he's not as good as these other teachers. Paul, look, he can't do what other people can do. And we'll read his response to these things as we go through the letter. But for now, it seems Paul, 
Trust him. He said he was going to come to you. He said he was going to come twice and he didn't turn up at all. Paul is concerned not about his reputation so much as about the impact that it might have on their Christian lives. Because he's the one who was the ambassador of Jesus. He's the one who brought the message to them. And if he can't be trusted, does that imply that God can't be trusted? So let's have a look at the way he responds. Why should you trust me, Paul says? Well, the first reason is his godly sincerity. Um, have a look with me at verse 12 and 13. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. So the first thing that Paul says is that he is at peace within himself that he's acted rightly. In fact, he calls three witnesses, and we can pick it up as we look at this passage. The first witness is his conscience. Uh, he's not troubled to say, I am reliable. His conscience is clear. He's acted with sincerity and he's acted with integrity. He's also written to them, notice, in verse 14, 13. For we do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. Uh, he's written to them clearly, understandably and truthfully. But the clincher, I think, as far as the witnesses go, is down in verse 23. He says there, I call God as my witness and I state my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now, we'll get to that uh, detail in a minute, but notice what he's saying. I'm persuaded myself that I've acted with integrity. Um, I, I've written to you and, and I've written uh, in, in a way that's reliable and trustworthy and easy to understand to you. But above all, God can testify that I have not been dishonest, that I have not been double-minded, that I've not promised one thing and delivered another. No, God knows that I've acted with sincerity and with integrity. God is my witness and he says I'd stake my life on it. Paul wants them to know that he is a man of sincerity and integrity, but he also wants them to understand what happened. And so he, he goes on to explain what it was that led him to say that he would go there and yet not go there. That is, he's dependable, but he's flexible. Have a look with me from verse 15. He says, Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. That is, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now there we see that he's planning to go twice. He wanted to go on his way to Macedonia and then again on his way back and then have them send him off to Judea. He planned two visits, but instead he made no visit. Verse 17, uh, was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. See, it seems like 
He's kind of fickle. It seems like he can't be trusted. It seems like he says one thing and does another thing. But that's not what's going on. Come down a little bit further to verse 23. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it. That, was, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, he says, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith that you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. See, Paul had intended to go to Corinth. Uh, he had a reason to go. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to spur them on. But his previous visit to them had been incredibly painful. There'd been all sorts of problems and difficulties. And it seems that Paul had come to understand somehow that if he was to turn up there in person again, it was likely to go the same way. It's not him that he's concerned about, it's them. He doesn't want to bring another painful visit to them. And so instead of visiting them and visiting them twice, he writes to them. He sends them a letter instead. And you can see something of this as you read on. Look at verse 2. He says, If I grieve you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I'm confident in all of you that you would share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You see something of his commitment here. He chooses to write to them because he doesn't want the visit to bring them pain and go badly. Instead, he, with great pain himself, through tears, agonisingly, makes the choice not to go, but to send a letter. Now, we don't know exactly which letter we're talking about. Um, is it 1 Corinthians? Don't know. There may be other letters as well. In fact, the indications in reading 2 Corinthians are that there were possibly three letters of Paul, or maybe four, but the Holy Spirit has desired that we have two of them as Scripture. But the point is, Paul is committed to their welfare and doing what's best for them. What will best be received? You see, if you have a difficult message to take to somebody, I would encourage you to think through, what's the best way of doing that? Is it to shoot a message out on Twitter? Hmm, I don't use Twitter. Other people do. Rarely goes well, I think. Maybe an email with lots of bold and exclamation marks. Uh, and do it straight away, fast as you can, shoot it right back. Or plaster it on Facebook so that not just them, but everybody can see it. Or get on the telephone and, and give them a piece of your mind. No. So if you've got a difficult conversation to have, you think through, what's going to be best? Would they like to get a card perhaps from me? Would that soften things a little bit? Should I... Drop a note around with some flowers. Would it be best if I got on the telephone and talked to them? Or would it actually be best if we arranged to meet for a coffee and sat down and talked about it? Now, the details are different, right? Paul didn't have Facebook, email, 
and uh, hit a floor and all that sort of thing. But the, the point is you think through what's going to be best. I think that's what Paul's saying. I had to think through what was going to be best. And it meant I didn't turn up. And I'm suffering now for not turning up because I know you're bad-mouthing me for not being there. But bear this in mind, friends, I did it for you. I'm committed to you. Now, there's more at stake, as I've said, than how they feel about Paul. Paul is the ambassador of the gospel. He's the one who has brought the message of Christ to them. He's the one who has introduced them to God, the Father. And we get hints in this passage that Paul is concerned not just that he be viewed as trustworthy, but that in defending his own trustworthiness, he highlight the trustworthiness of God. That's what really matters. And we'll see that. Come back to the way he argues this. It's like a heavyweight argument for a point. And we see that when he says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it. Right? This is pretty intense. But come back further, back to verse 17. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. See, he's basing his faithfulness on the certainty of God's faithfulness. As surely as God is faithful, I've been faithful with you. That's what he's saying. And look at what he says about God's faithfulness. It's rock solid. You've got to hear it. It's incredible. For the Son of God, verse 19, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Here's the first thing. Can God be trusted? Yes. How much? Absolutely. How do we know? Well, because every promise that he has made finds its yes in Christ. Now this verse is bigger than you could ever imagine. What it's saying is that God is the promise-keeping God and every promise he's ever made finds its answer in Jesus. It finds its yes in Christ. Now, as you go back to the Old Testament, you see that there are many promises. Uh, here's an example. I will send my suffering servant who will die for you. Who's that? Well, that's Jesus. You, you find in Psalm 110 that God's king will rule over all. Who's that? Well, that's Jesus. Now, it's true that there are many specific promises through the Old Testament. And if you had a highlight pen, you could probably start at Genesis, work through to Malachi, and you'd identify a number of specific promises. But I think it's saying more than that. It's not simply saying that every particular prophecy is answered in Jesus, as true as that is. It's saying every word that God has ever spoken is focused towards Jesus. Jesus is God's full and final revelation, it says in Hebrews 1. God has made himself fully known in Christ. Everything that he'd been setting up in the Old Testament, 
back there in the Garden of Eden, the, the promise that gets made that the seed of the woman will destroy the serpent's head. Right there in Genesis 3 and verse 15, the gospel encapsulated in that statement. Moving on to Noah and the promise there that, that uh, God would start again, he would make a new creation and that he would never judge the world in that way again. And he reminds us of that in the rainbows that we see plenty of down here on the beach. And then you get to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and you will have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And you will be blessed and you will bless others and you'll be my people. And then as he brings the people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses and gathers them to be his chosen possession, the royal priesthood. And then as he makes promises through the judges, through the kings, as David becomes the anointed, the Messiah, and we read so many of the Psalms by this man. And then Solomon after him, and we read the, the, the Proverbs and probably Ecclesiastes and other parts of the Old Testament. And then when we get to the prophets and the word of God coming to people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and, and you read right through, you see every promise God is making. From Genesis 1 right through to Malachi chapter 4, every promise finds its yes in Christ. Friends, I want to labour this point because the most revolutionary thing that happened to me when I was a student in my second year at university was I realised that the Bible as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, hung together and the key was Jesus. Every promise God has made finds its yes in Jesus. God is a faithful God. You try and look at the circumstances and you see COVID one day. And you see perhaps, and God willing, soon a vaccine another. Is God faithful on one day and not the other? If you're unwell or you are in good health, are they observations that you can nail down to God's trustworthiness or his lack of trustworthiness? If you have a job and a good income, or you lose your job and you lose your income, does that mean God is faithful or God is not faithful? Friends, the faithfulness of God doesn't stand on your or my circumstances. And the faithfulness of God didn't stand on whether Paul turned up or whether he wrote a letter. No, the faithfulness of God is declared absolutely clearly in one place, and that is in Jesus. Every promise God has made finds its yes, its amen in Jesus. The second thing that Paul reminds them here is that if, if they are ever to doubt whether God is trustworthy, remember this, God gives his spirit to all who trust in him. Listen to the way it's put there in verse 21. Verse 21, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You want evidence that you're secure in God, that he's trustworthy? Well, he gives his spirit to all who trust in Jesus. Now, now what is that? What does that mean? He gives a certificate of, of, of baptism saying you're in the club? No. Is it a, a kind of confirmation letter 
from the bishop? So you are now part of the church? No. Is it that God brings a particular blessing upon you to let you know specifically that he's got you? No. It's bigger than any of that. It's that God dwells personally by his spirit in those who trust him. And yet he's got nothing more to give. We, we stand firm in Christ because the spirit of Christ is given to us He's placed in our hearts as a guarantee, as a deposit, that, that, the, that the full acceptance of God is ours and we'll experience the totality of that one day when Jesus returns or we return to him. You see, how can you know that God can be trusted? Look to Jesus. And, and if you are tempted uh, to doubt one day, or another day, or one year, or another year, or as you look at life and what's going on around about you, refocus. Refocus to the scriptures where God has kept his promises in Jesus. That's where you can be sure that God is committed to you and that he's trustworthy. And he's given you his spirit. And he's not going to give his spirit lightly. He's not going to come and dwell in you and then duck off for a while. No, it's a down payment on everything that God has for us. So friends, this letter is about trust. Paul is saying he could be trusted because they were doubting that, it seems. And he's saying better than that, God can be trusted. Because maybe the way that they were behaving in the light of what he did made him wonder whether they were really trusting in God. And he makes it very clear that God is trustworthy. So I want to encourage us to be growing in our trust of God, uh, to be reminding each other that God is trustworthy. That's one of the big reasons to get together, so that we can remind each other that he's a good God and he's a good God all of the time, no matter what's going on. And I want to encourage us to get into his word. And it doesn't matter whether you're getting into the Old Testament that's pointing towards Jesus or whether you're getting into the New Testament that climaxes in Jesus and shows how Jesus applies. Because every promise God has made finds its yes in Christ. I want to encourage you to remember and to delight humbly in the fact that if you've put your trust in Jesus, that you can know that you have the Spirit of God within you. And God is not going to take that from you. You can trust God. And I want to encourage you to grow in trust of each other, of, of your fellow brothers and sisters. And one of the best ways to grow in trust of each other is to prove yourself trustworthy. Because people trust a trustworthy person. And how do you prove yourself trustworthy? Well, there's something that's foundational, I think, to trust. And that is love. Let's commit ourselves to loving one another, practically caring for each other, looking out for one another, sincerely committed to each other so that we build trust, so that we become a community of God's people that are faithful to each other and encourage each other to be faithful to God. Well, how about we pray that God will help us to do that?